Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Voluntary consensus standards. What are they? Why do you care? What role do they play in your regulatory submission process? Well, I've got Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, and we dive into this topic and its importance to you as a medical device professional. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is the host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And today we're going to talk about, I think, a pretty important topic, and and we'll dive into why I think that's important here in a few moments. But the topic is, what role do voluntary consensus standards have in the medical device industry, or medical device, excuse me, regulatory submission process? And... You know, when we talk about things regulatory, uh, you guessed it, folks. I've got Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences joining me today. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, John. Well, you know, this topic of standards, I um, I remember many, many years ago when I was developing some of uh, the first devices that I worked on. And I was like, discovering standards was like a, a new thing. I was like, oh, what is this? And why does it matter? And, and why do I care? And you know, because, you know, I was doing some testing and things that were on, you know, benchtop testing, things that I thought made good sense. And, uh, and I realized, oh, wow, there's a standard out there. And and I was confused a little bit because, you know, I didn't really know what, what this all had to do with what I was doing. So I guess probably a good first place to start is what is a voluntary standard? Well, it is a good place to start, John. And let's actually back up even more basic, what's a standard? So simply put, a standard is something that's recognized by somebody else or a group of people. It could be ISO, it could be ASTM, it could be FDA, it could be you and I. It could be just about anyway, anybody. And when it comes to a voluntary standard, all standards, in my opinion, are voluntary, John, whether something says it's required or not, kind of like uh, you know guidance or regulation. You know, As we've talked about many times before, I believe all guidance, all regulation is voluntary. We can either comply with it or not if it makes sense. But if it doesn't make sense, then we need to justify why we're not going to comply with it and what we're going to do instead. And so the exact same thing when it when it comes to standards. I see lots of companies that I work with, John, and I'm, I'm sure that you do as well. They will follow these standards for no other reason than simply because they are the standard. That's what they think somebody requires. Even when I ask them, is that standard applicable? Does it apply to you? No, but they do it anyway. And uh, in my opinion, John, that's not an approach that we should advocate. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Well, yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, it's just going back to my own personal experience, you know, there are a lot of standards that are out there from a lot of different agencies, ISO, ASTM, IEC, and, you know, and there are many, many other standards organizations. But, you know, it's just uh, don't, don't follow blindly, you know, and just you make sure it makes sense to what you're doing. And, I'm, and I know we're going to talk about that throughout our conversation today. But, you know, FDA recently came out with a guidance document that has to do with um, FDA's recognition of consensus standards. So, you know, I, I guess I'm curious, why do I care as a medical device professional about this this newer guidance document from FDA? 
Well, it's a relatively minor guidance, uh, John. It's In fact, it's very short. It's only eight pages. But the broader topic of standards, I think, is is uh, applicable across the board to our entire industry um, because it's something that all of us have to deal with no matter what kind of a medical device that we're working on. Basically, in this particular guidance, all it does is it provides a little bit of information on how FDA determines what standards that they will accept, that they will recognize, and what standards that they will not. It's important for everybody in the audience, John, to remember that FDA has said many, many times publicly over the years that they do not recognize all, quote-unquote, recognized standards. And in my opinion, I strongly agree. They should not. You know, there are a lot of standards out there that, to me, as a professional biomedical engineer, don't make sense. Or the standard is too low and we need to raise the bar. So, for example, FDA has said many times that they will not recognize ISO standards across the board. Some ISO standards they will recognize and some they will not. There is a database on FDA's website. It's one of uh, the 18 or so CDRH's databases that talk about or that list the recognized consensus standards that FDA currently recognizes. And we can provide a link to that database as part of the... The, the podcast, John. But to me, this is all this this all is is, is common sense, and I would ask I would actually ask uh, or suggest to FDA to take that database a step further. I would like to have some information in there about the standards that they don't recognize and why they don't recognize them. Because as a professional biomedical engineer, John, that would save me an awful lot of time. I tend to agree, and I know. FDA has been doing quite a bit of work on this topic of consensus standards. I know at Greenlight, we did a a podcast with uh, FDA on this topic a few months back. So, you know, we'll also provide a link to that so you can, you know, I guess, learn a little bit more from from an FDA perspective on this topic as well. But yeah, I mean, as, as a biomedical engineer, I mean, I'm trying to figure out what I need to know. But to your point, it's also maybe equally important of... Uh, understanding what I don't need to know, I suppose. But um, <laughs> but this topic of standards, though, I think it, it seems to have you know there. You and know, I've talked uh, quite a bit throughout the the 2018 about all the the quote changes uh, in FDA with respect to like regulatory pathways and alternative 510ks and special 510ks and abbreviated 510ks and all these sorts of things. But I know there's a there's a correlation between this topic of consensus standards and, and regulatory pathways, but maybe we can elaborate a little, a little bit on this. Which regulatory pathways uh, to market are more important with respect to this topic of standards? Well, it's a great question, John. And obviously, standards are important to medical devices across the board and by extension to all medical device pathways to market across the board, whether we're talking about 510K, de novo, PMA, HTE, CDE, what have you. But in particular, uh, oh, oh, and just as an FYI, FDA has recognized about 400 standards specifically for people that are doing 510Ks to declare conformity. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But the, the pathway I think that is the most important when it comes to standards is the least commonly used type of 510K. It's the abbreviated 510K or 
what uh, Scott Gottlieb is now calling the alternative 510K, which you and I have talked about in the past. The reason why this is the most important one when it comes to standards is because the essence of the abbreviated 510K is very, very simple. All you have to show is that you're relying on a existing guidance document or a special control or, in this particular case, a recognized standard. And that's really all you have to do. And one of the questions I get from people when they're doing this kind of submission, John, or if they're just simply relying on a, on a standard for another uh, type of a regulatory submission, do they need to submit the test data in support of that standard? The short answer is no. A, uh, you know, this is what we call a declaration of conformity. In other words, you can do this in one sentence. You can basically say, I conform to ISO, blah, 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 or ASTM, blah, 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 or Underwriters Labs, blah, 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 period, and sign it and date it, and that's all that's required. Now, I don't usually recommend doing that because that would be the absolute minimum. I have several recommendations that I provide to companies. Do you think, John, would that be useful to go into here a little bit? Yeah, I think that's probably a good idea because, you know, and let me share a story from my past on this topic, too, because, um, well, I was working on a catheter project years ago, many years ago, and we had, this was more from an more from a outside U.S. lens, I suppose, but, but it's still, I think, relevant. Uh, the um, design history file of the project that I was working on was the scope of a, an ISO uh, 1345 audit. And um, they were looking at standards that we had referenced during the design development of the project. And, you know, I had referenced, uh, uh, there's an ISO standard for intravascular catheters. I think it's ISO 10-10555-1, And one of the, the criteria in this standard was about um, essentially tensile test or, or strength test of, of any bonds within that catheter. And my testing, my verification testing, I had cited the methodology that's described in that standard and, and basically showed that we met the criteria. And then the auditor did something that I was not expecting. He went through every clause within that standard and asked where my proof or objective evidence was for each of the different clauses. So you know, I, I thought I'd share that story because I think it's pertinent to, to this topic of declaration of conformity. Well, I agree. It's perfect, uh, John. It's a great example. Thank you for sharing that. And definitely, when it comes to an uh, FDA audit, the company needs to have that information, that data available. And definitely, when it comes to what I was referring to a moment ago, when it comes to a regulatory submission, like an abbreviated 510K, the company definitely has to have that information, that data available. The question that I was sort of getting into is, do we need to provide that data as part of the submission? Right. And as I started to explain, the short answer is no, absolutely not, at least not necessarily. But you do have to have that information available upon request. Mm -hmm. So here are my questions, uh, my recommendations, John, because this is an area that uh, I get questioned on from people a lot, and I suspect you probably do as well. So first of all, don't assume that the FDA reviewers are an expert in your particular technology or in, in this particular standard. So the first thing that I like to include is what the standard is, why it applies to our particular technology. And by the way, I always try to provide a reference to that particular standard if they are not familiar with that standard or if it's been quite some time since they've reviewed it. 
and don't even get me started, John, about this this business of how many of the ISO standards are are um, copyrighted, and you can't just simply <laughs> provide a link. I mean, I think that's that's ridiculous. But that's a topic uh, yeah. Yeah, so, and folks, let me just elaborate on what, what Mike's saying because I, I get these requests all the time. Like, hey, can you can you give me a copy of uh, ISO blah 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 standard or IEC standard? And folks, I, as much as I would love to, I cannot <laughs> because these are a, a, a fee for service sort of thing. You have to pay for these on your own. Which, as Mike said, that's a whole different topic for, uh, for a whole different conversation. But uh, yeah, you know, I just think. It's I just crazy. think it makes our jobs much easier, or sorry, much more difficult, John. And one of my philosophies when it comes to FDA reviewers is I want to make their job as easy as I can. So if they're not familiar with a particular standard or if it's been yeah. quite a long time since they've looked at the details of that standard, I would like to be able to just provide a link. You know, if you're not familiar, you know, click on this link and here are the details. But anyway, that's probably not a problem that you and I are going to solve today. I would suspect, no, we are not. But it, but it is an interesting point because, you know, I'm trying to convey to, to FDA uh, why this standard applies to my product and how, I mean, it's a somewhat of a rhetorical question, but how can I effectively do that when I'm not allowed to actually share that standard as an appendice or, or a reference? I have to uh, hope or assume that that FDA reviewer is a either familiar with this this standard that I'm referencing already, or b um, uh, has access to the the latest greatest version of that standard too. So it, it is a bit tricky, but you know I, I'm sure this is why your recommendations are are going to be uh, appropriate for for those listening. Well, first of all, FDA obviously does have access to uh, the details of standards. Um, I would just like to make that process easier. And I have heard tell, John, I'm not necessarily saying that I have done this or I have, you know, I advocate this, but I have heard that some people will actually include uh, a standard as an appendix or something is part of their submission, whether that violates any copyright laws or something, I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, there are ways that we can that we can ease the burden, so to speak. My next recommendation, and this happens a lot as well, if you're if you're following a standard, if you're doing a test without any changes to the test methodology whatsoever, then all you need to do is say we're following you know this particular standard. End of discussion. However, that doesn't often happen. Most of the time, because of the, the, the device under development or the technological differences, the company may have to make some changes or modifications to that particular standard. That's not at all a problem, but what you do need to do, um, and I always do this in advance of the submission, John, in the form of a pre-sub, you do need to say, we're going to be following this particular standard. We're going to be following the methodology as written with the following uh, changes or modifications. And oh, by the way, here's the reason why we're making these changes or modifications. And the reason why I always share that with FDA in advance, John, is because if there's going to be a question, if there's going to be a concern or an issue, I want to find out about it sooner. I don't want to find out about it at the point of the submission and then they have the submission rejected because they don't understand why those changes or modifications were made. The next recommendation I have is to make sure that you can explain why that particular standard applies based on your technology. And what I like to do, John, is I will shore up my arguments, not just with what I say, but I love to include 
letters from subject matter experts. And when I do this, and I do this a lot, especially in pre-subs, I will ask somebody, usually from academia, you know, the chair of biomedical engineering at one of the, you know, good universities or, you know, a, uh, a surgeon or, or, you know, it depends on what kind of a subject matter expert you're looking for. But the first thing I say to them is, I do not want you to say anything about our particular device. And I certainly do not want you to say our device is the greatest thing since sliced bread because that's inherently biased. When it comes to standards, I would ask, you know, somebody to, you know, say, for example, the, the chair of biomedical engineering at, at Hopkins, just to, to, to pick an example, to, for, for them to say, based on my understanding of the technology of the device under development, it makes sense to me as a as the chair of biomedical engineering to apply this particular standard to assess the safety, efficacy, performance of, of the device and so on. So I want to make sure that I show my friends at the FDA, it's not just me that's, uh, that's saying these things. It's, uh, you know, it's other people, subject matter experts that uh, agree with me. And the last recommendation, and I get this, I had this question come up as part of a pre-sub that I was doing at FDA just a few weeks ago. Sometimes companies, in order to save some time or to save some money, they want to do the testing themselves. And sometimes they want to do it not under uh, GMP or somehow other regulated conditions. That's not necessarily a problem, but you do need to explain to the FDA, again, in advance, ideally in the form of a pre-sub, who's going to be doing the test. You're going to be doing it yourself in your company, or you're going to be farming it out to somebody else. And especially if you're not going to be doing it under GMP, why you're not going to be doing it under GMP. This is a topic of a whole different discussion, John. Perhaps we'll have a future podcast on, but the justification, not just of the testing that you're doing, but who's doing it and how it's being done. This is one of the most common reasons why submissions are either delayed or flat out rejected by the FDA. And it's another one of these areas where, unfortunately, these, these kinds of problems are, are you know, almost 100 uh, percent preventable by, yeah. uh, by, by doing these things in advance. Yeah, I mean, it's folks. These are these are uh, really simple things, but obviously, Mike is mentioning them because just because they're really simple things and what seems to be in the category, the bucket of common sense, they're not applied uh, all that often, sadly. And to Mike's point, these are just simple things that you can do that are completely avoidable uh, early on in in the process and. You know, it puts even more weight or, or credence into the value that a pre-submission can bring to your process. So, you know, all this aside, I mean, I mean, are there some, I guess, strategic or competitive advantages for me to engage or, or consider the use of standards? Absolutely. You know, a lot of people think that, you know, standards are just uh, more hoops that you have to jump through. Uh, I'm sorry, I just don't look at it that way. There are some very significant uh, strategic or competitive advantages. And I'll just um, uh, remind our audience of two examples. The first is we talked a little bit about the 510K and specifically the abbreviated 510K a moment ago. Well, one of the big advantages of a de novo, if you end up doing a de novo as opposed to a 510K, is that you get an opportunity to, mm, let me say, influence the FDA as to what new special controls, what new standards, if you will, will be created as part of that new product code. And if you design those those tests correctly, so you can design them so that they're favorable to your product, 
but at the same time makes it more difficult for your competitors to match. And that's a very sophisticated use of regulation. You know, I have talked a little bit about competitive regulatory strategy before John and some other podcasts. That's yeah. a very um, that's a that's a very savvy use of regulation, in my opinion. The second example of how we can use standards to an to our advantage, I have a few companies that I work with where they have folks who are sitting on various committees at ISO or ASDM or so on. And when it comes to developing or adopting new standards, they have input, in some cases, a quite a bit of input as to what those standards look like. So if you're sitting on one of those committees and you can have some influence, of course, your competitors may be sitting on those committees as well. Right. But if you have some input as to how those standards um, are, are written, once again, that can be a very uh, significant competitive advantage for you and at the same time, a competitive disadvantage for your competition. Does that make right. sense, John? Uh, it totally makes sense. And, you know, I am I, um, actually encourage folks to try to participate in these activities. Um, for, for me, from, for one, uh, um, there's many, but for one simple reason, there are some of these standards, Mike, uh, and again, a different topic for a, a whole different conversation. But there are some of these standards that, in my opinion, are getting to the point where they're extremely unwieldy. And and definitely not practical, and and I think they're getting to a point where the standards writers are are um, they're making things uh, significantly more burdensome than they need to be. Yeah, I understand we have an awesome responsibility in the medical device industry to make sure that the products we develop are safe and effective uh, and meet indications for use. And and I understand the role that. That standards play in this process, but there are some of these standards, and I won't I won't name them right now. But there are some of them out there that are uh, it is crazy how ridiculous they are, in my opinion. Well, John, I could not agree with you more. And regrettably, I have to say, every single week, in some cases every day, as a regulatory consultant, but more importantly as a professional biomedical engineer, I read regulation, I read guidance, I read standards that make absolutely no sense and yet people follow them anyway. And 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 that's a in my opinion, that's a, a significant problem. It's the adage, you know, the surgery went perfectly but the patient died anyway. Well, it's the regulatory equivalent. We followed the regulation perfectly. We did all that FDA asked us to do and yet the patient died anyway. Unfortunately these problems happen more frequently than some people would like to think. So perhaps we can wrap this up, John, yeah, with just a few sure. final thoughts and recommendations, and I'll start out. First of all, companies obviously should be aware of the standards that apply to their particular technology, but as I said earlier, don't just follow them blindly. Um, consider them like guidance or, or or any regulation. They are recommended but not necessarily required if you don't if you're not going to follow that standard for whatever reason, you do need to justify why. And in my opinion, although the regulation doesn't say it, you should, your justification should not be shared with the FDA for the first time as part of your submission. There's no better way to get your submission thrown right back in your face then to do that, what you should do is take it to the FDA in advance of your submission, whether it's in the form of a pre-sub or something else, I don't really care. Another thing to uh, to keep in mind is um, when you're meeting the regulatory requirements or when you're meeting a particular standard, that's the academic equivalent of being a C student. 
that just means that you're passing. That does not mean that you're making a safe and effective product. It certainly doesn't mean necessarily that you're making a good product. So our goal as an industry should not be simply regulatory compliance or quality compliance or meeting a particular standard. I think we can really set the bar a little bit higher than that. As I said earlier, another recommendation is not simply to justify what you're doing or what what standards you're following. You should also justify what you're not doing and what standards you're not following. When I go into the FDA, John, and as you know, I'm down there pretty frequently, at least once a month, sometimes more, I will explain to them not just what I'm doing, but I will also tell them what I'm not doing and why I'm not doing it. Most people don't do this, John, but this is why most people's submissions are rejected, um, because I want to take away every possible opportunity I have for FDA to disagree with me. Um, And use the opportunity to create new standards to your advantage, whether you're doing this as a de novo or as a PMA, whether you're serving on a standards committee, there's some significant advantages of, of being able to do that. If there is an existing standard that applies to your device or your technology, remember, you're probably not doing anything new because one of my definitions of new or novel is there is no regulation for it. There is no guidance for it. There are no standards for it. There is no reimbursement for it. So that's something to think about. And last and perhaps most importantly for our audience, John, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this as well. When it comes to your device, when it comes to your technology, when it comes to the standards that you're going to be following and the standards that you're not going to be following, the company should be the expert, not the FDA. You as a company should know a heck of a lot more about your technology and your device than the FDA ever will. And for, for, for Pete's sakes, never go to the FDA and ask them what standards apply or don't apply to your particular device. I mean, with all due respect, that's your job. That's not the FDA's job to tell you. And I had a friend of mine just the other day, one of my very good friends who's an FDA reviewer, shared with me yet another story. He said he had somebody come from a company, and basically they said, we're, de- we're developing this device. It works this way. Can you please tell us what standards apply? It's like, did you go to engineering school? Did you do your homework? <laughs> so it's a spin on my, it's a spin on my mantra that, that, that I've mentioned many times before, John. When it comes to FDA, tell, don't ask, lead, don't follow. Yeah. And this applies to, to many things, including standards. So yeah. that's just a few of the final thoughts and recommendations that I wanted to share with the audience. If you have any other examples or any other recommendations, please feel free to share them. No, Mike, I appreciate the insights on this topic. And folks, uh, I would just uh, wrap this up with this thought. Understand that you know, standards can have, and in, in many cases should have a role in what you're doing as a medical device professional. Uh, and there's a lot of importance for uh, a variety of different products that uh, will support your regulatory uh, rationale, your regulatory submission. And you know, there's there's a few tips that, that should you should all leave with is you know become that expert, understand uh, what your product does, understand if there are standards that are uh, applicable to your product, and in the case that there's not, you know, be prepared to to define you know, the methodology, the, the the testing criteria, whatever the case may be, to demonstrate that that product is safe and, and that it 
you know, meets the, the indications for use. Because this is the big picture. Uh, um, standards are, are here, or the, the, the big picture intent of a standard is, is as we talked about earlier, is an, it's an accepted way of doing something. And, you know, the, the bigger picture above that is that, you know, the idea behind this is it's a, really about promoting uh, the safety and efficacy of your product. So, you know, understand that that role that standards play, but don't just do it blindly. You know, be, you have to become that expert in, in your product and what, what applies, what doesn't apply. And, and just, you know, we, tell your story. Uh, explain to FDA and other regulatory agencies the story of your product, what what it does, what it doesn't do, why it does this, why it doesn't do this, and, and support it with standards and, and other methodologies that, that you've employed during the design and development of that. So, Mike, thank you so much for uh, your time today and, and, and enlightening our audience on the role that voluntary consensus standards uh, have in the medical device regulatory submission process. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to, to speak with you and your audience. All right. And folks, just a reminder, I've been talking to Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. You know, he's an expert in all things uh, medical device regulatory related. So at any point in time, if you have a question, you can always reach out to him and contact him. Uh, I know he's happy to help you uh, with your strategy and, and provide a little bit of clarity to this this jungle of regulatory uh, <laughs> issues and challenges that are in front of all of us in the, the med device space these days. And of course, you know, understand that a lot of what we're talking about, uh, have been talking about today on the topic of standards, this is part and parcel with your design and development efforts, things that you should be addressing as part of your design control and in some respects, your risk management of your medical device product development efforts. And this is a big part of what we do at Greenlight Guru. We have developed a medical device specific software solution designed by medical device professionals. And there are workflows to manage all of your design and development activities, your risk management activities, and it ties into your entire quality management system. So if, if you need a little bit of help and a little bit of guidance on simplifying the process and holding it all together, I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. As always, this is the host of the Global Medical Device Podcast, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight, John Spear.